0: Take your Bibles to Psalm chapter 18 tonight. Now, I one time I went and I, I guess I would say I had the opportunity, but I would loosely use that term, um, but I had the opportunity to go to a church services quite unlike ours. Um, they had more uh, talent than most churches I've ever seen. Uh, geographically, they were located in a place with a lot of aspiring artists, and so they had some of the best singers, some of the best musicians. Uh, they, they were amazing at the, the amounts of talent that they had, and I remember going to what they called a pre-service production, and um, I was there just kind of sitting in the seats, as they ran through their service, and they staged everything out. I mean, they had the grand entrance with the singers coming out, and they were clapping, and they were uh, coordinating the light show behind the artist and performer. Um, And, I mean, boy, the lady that was singing sounded like she belonged on some uh, Nashville album, And, and truly she probably had been on one or two, to be honest with you. Um, but they were just so over-talented, and, and they, they, they had this thing just set up to where there was no flaws and no failure. I mean, it was just a perfectly oiled machine. And I sat back there the whole time thinking, where's the Holy Spirit in this? I mean, if the works of man's hands generally fail, especially when it comes to religion and worship of God, I mean, biblically, the times when I see men getting their hands in worship, it's when Aaron says, I don't know, we started a fire and a calf flew out of it. And, uh, you know, there's no lonelier feeling than where Brother Chris Dyer was just now. And you mess up the words or you can't get, get it right, but I'm thankful that we're not a production. Uh, we don't ask for perfection. We ask for people who serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. With their whole heart just saying, Father, the talents you've given me, I'm willing to let you use them. And that's all God asks of us. And I believe motives and I believe intentions are very important when it comes to how we worship our Heavenly Father. So, uh, Brother Chris... Get back up on that horse next time, and I'm sure it won't be as lonely. But uh, I'm thankful for Brother Chris and his testimony here at the church and his faithfulness to serve uh, and and be in the uh, band, if that's what we're calling it now, but the worship praise team, the rap session, whatever we're calling them now, I'm thankful Brother Chris Dyer is a part of our church. Psalm chapter number 18 tonight. uh, We spoke last week really out of one verse. Now, that one verse took us many places, and we were describing the context of the psalm and what it was written to say and the the attitude by which the author would have had at the moment. And this psalm was written immediately following David's tremendous deliverance by God's hand from King Saul. And we talked about how many times David showed a tremendous faith in God during all of that. And, and, and implicitly, I tried sharing with you the pressures that David would be feeling when the king of the nation is trying to take his life from him. And yet the whole time, he honored God and trusted God. And it was an amazing story. But this week, we find ourselves starting at the very beginning of the psalm. And I want to take a look, and really we're only going to read two verses tonight, and we're actually going to have two weeks of sermons out of these two verses. This week is going to be three major lessons that we can learn through God's working in our life, and next week will be three assurances, or many assurances that we can find when God works in our life. So let's get started. Psalm chapter number 18, verse number 1. I will say this. Thank you all for your concern about my daughter. Uh, Thank you for your concern about all that. I tried making sure that everybody was aware God is taking care of my wife. God is taking care of me and my family. Um, and I appreciate the many offers and the prayers that are being offered for us, but that was not my intention as I shared those stories, and honestly, that was my reservation when I began to share them. I simply wanted you to understand where my heart was coming from as I preached that sermon. God is good. He's good all the time, and He's always provided, and as David said, I have... I've been young, and I am older now, and yet I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. And I, that's how I feel this evening. God's been good to me and my family. Um, for an update on my daughter, the doctor's report was great. We're still kind of trying to figure our way through it, but we have a doctor kind of helping us understand it all. But ultimately, my faith is not in the doctor at Cook's Children. Uh, my faith is in the great physician. And I sat today at lunch, and I looked at all these rugrats running around that my family now has. Benjamin, the oldest, then Caitlin, then Olivia, and now we have a, a Barrett. And I just looked at them all, and I said, God has been so good to our family to give us this many healthy children and uh, I just can't thank him enough for what he's done in my life and in my family's life. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your thoughts and concerns. But God is good to me and my family, and, and the church has been good to us as well. So that being said, Psalm chapter 18, verse number 1. Now, I will, we will consult the little bit of information that many Bibles probably will contain tonight. That is not scripture and it is not inspired, however, however, it will help us understand what the psalm was written for and who it was written to, and all those types of things. But we'll start in verse number one. The Bible says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. I want to read those again, and I want you to really focus as we read them. Don't allow football games or chores that you have to sidetrack you. Let's read them together, focus in on what the Bible is saying. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight asking for your blessing. Lord, we've met truly wanting to hear from you, Uh, These folks have many places to be, and they could have chosen to go many of those places tonight, but they each one chose to come to this service because they believed with their whole heart that they had a better chance of hearing from you in this service than anywhere in town. And, Lord, I believe with my whole heart that you've promised to meet with us as we open your word and many of us are gathered to worship you. I believe your Holy Spirit will be here. Now, Lord, I pray that you would remove side. Uh, anything that could sidetrack us, Lord, any distractions that may uh, call for our attention so that we can fully put our attention to the Word of God and what the Holy Spirit is doing in each and every one of our hearts tonight. I pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Now, many years ago, the very best commercials on television, and I hate to admit this, were beer commercials. In fact... We really, most of the time, watched the Super Bowl not for the quality football that was being played, but for the beer commercials that would happen throughout the game. And you say, Brother Andrew, that's quite a heathen of you. I'm sorry, many of them were funny. But I'm thankful to say that is no longer the case. The beer commercials are no longer the funniest. The funniest commercials now are the insurance commercials. They are hysterical, many of which... Uh, You know, they they have celebrities, they have many other people, but they are hilarious. Now, even throughout the humor that these commercials involve, they always end with a slogan or a company motto to help you understand what that company is trying to do. And I want to share with you tonight some of the insurance company slogans and what they're trying to do in a identifying with us as potential customers and patrons of their business. First of all, and this is a very familiar a slogan, this is State Farm's slogan. Many of us could remember it, quote it. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And that's a good slogan because it calls to our heart comfort, security, security, and that's what a good slogan is. It helps you identify with something that you're already aware of, but then it tries giving you somewhat of a mind share to that and that company. So like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It almost reminds you of when you need your grass cut, uh, you can rely on your neighbor if your mower breaks down to do it for No, no, I don't have a neighbor that good that would do it for me. But you can go to your neighbor and say, hey, can I borrow yours? Oh, yeah, I'm a good neighbor. Sure, I'll let you mow your yard with my uh, tractor. So that's what the slogan is, Prudential Financial. This is a good one, and I find it uh, very unique to the message tonight. This is Prudential. It says, let Prudential be your rock. Ah. Sounds pretty familiar, to be honest with you, but they're trying to show you their strength and the stability that their company will help you uh, feel when you become part of their company. Uh, this is Penn Mutual, a better way of life. Almost promises, promising you, if you come to our company, we will make your life better, a better way of life. Allied insurance, this is pretty good. Allied insurance. On your side. Makes you feel like you're never going to be alone as long as you have that insurance company. I mean, if you have allied, we're on your side and we're allied together no matter what happens. Humana. Guidance when you most need it. Amen. That, when a wife doesn't make supper for you because she's angry. And uh, you need guidance as to where to go at 1030 at night because not all places are open that late. And, and uh, that's Humana. You call them up, they'll have that, tell you what's, what's going on, where you need to go. Humana says guidance when you most need it. They're promising you that when you don't have answers, they do. Now, does this sound kind of familiar at all? I, it just sounds kind of familiar to me. Uh, Pacific life, Pacific life, the power to help you succeed. Oh, it speaks to the power that they have and how their power can directly help you be a success i like that principal financial group will give you an edge century insurance strength protection and vigilance those are good things to have uh, aarp to serve not to be served i like that uh, usaa this is a a good one. I really do like this one. We know what it means to serve. And I think that's our Armed Forces Insurance Branch. And so it's kind of a play on the fact that all the people involved know service and they, they will service you in the same way. And then my personal favorite, and I have to say it's because I am a patron of this company. I am a loyal monthly payer of their insurance. That is Allstate. And many of you know their slogan, and I saved it for the last because it's my personal favorite, and it says, "You're in good hands with Allstate." Now, I've shared with you recently the uh, the home burglary that my wife and I went through, and and I, I remember that day having my wife, or my mom, and my dad, and my wife, and my sister all sitting there, and. Uh, we were kind of gathered around, and many things are going through your mind when something like that happens. But I remember looking at my father and saying, well, I guess we'll find out how good those hands are. (laughs) For some reason, even though that motto provides a sense of security, it is a little bit intimidating when you have to rely on that security. And they handled my case, and uh, they've helped me out a little bit. And and uh, they called me the other day, and they wanted me to give a uh, customer report, satisfaction report. And they asked me many questions, and, and uh, those questions were like, how knowledgeable was the associate who helped you? And another question was, do you feel like your uh, claim was handled in an appropriate manner of time? And and all these different questions, and I gave them a 10 on just about everything. And So I was pretty pleased with my service. But if you will tonight, give me the liberty. That is essentially what David is doing. He is reporting on God's care and provision in his life. And he's telling you the lessons that he's learned throughout all of it. Now, before our home invasion... I had no idea what goes down with an insurance claim and all the insecurities and the fears and all that thing, all that stuff. But now I could give you a crash course in it because I'm pretty well experienced. And David says, I've gone through this tremendous dilemma. Now listen to the lessons that I have learned. I want to share three of them with you tonight. This lesson was a shareable lesson. A shareable lesson. Now, look in the information provided just above your chapter there. Many Psalms and many Bibles will have uh, a a tidbit of information describing the author, describing the uh, surrounding, a little bit of the context. And uh, this uh, uh, information here for Psalm chapter 18 says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, now how many of your Bibles say something like that? Mine does, most Bibles will. It's just a little bit of context to help us understand what's going on. Now this, and, and maybe this will help you learn something, this is not the first time that we've encountered this passage of Scripture. This is the delivery of this scripture to the chief musician. I want to take you to the place where this scripture is first uh, mentioned, in 2 Samuel chapter number 22. Now, this is the delivery, our psalm tonight, in Psalm chapter 18, is the delivery of this psalm, this song, this prayer to the chief musician. But this is not the first time we've encountered this. We encountered it back in 2 Samuel, chapter number 22. And this is unique because this is a psalm in Samuel. The Bible says in chapter number 22, verse number 1, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hands of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Verse number 2, And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him I will, will I trust. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, my tower, my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. Now, it goes on down, and the psalm and this chapter are almost identical. But I want to draw to your attention that the first time this song is sung, it is sung unto the Lord. Now, you say, well, that's pretty obvious, Brother Andrew. But the second time, it is not a psalm sung unto the Lord. It is a psalm delivered to the chief musician. You see, tonight, this lesson is a shareable lesson because, first of all, it was a personal worship. You see, the first time we experienced this psalm, David is singing it of a contrite spirit, a broken spirit, a spirit of worship to God, only him and David were there, almost as if he was in his own prayer closet, And there was no one else around. And he was not doing it for the praise of men or the acknowledgement of men. He was doing it from a heart who had just received the deliverance of God on his life. And he's there broken in prayer. And he just begins to weep. And he just begins to uh, mourn. And he, he recalls all the pressures that he went through. And he looks to God and says, You are my salvation. You are my rock. You are my deliverer, my strength. You are are my savior, the horn of my salvation, my high tower. You are my deliverer. It was a personal worship. Can I ask you, how is your personal worship of Jesus going lately? Because what I can research in the Bible, I find that when there is a personal worship present, fear... And insecurities tend to fade away. But when there is no personal worship and you're not in a communing spirit with God, generally that's when the fears and the intimidations of everyday life hit you the hardest. You say, Brother Andrew, I I, I just don't believe you. Well, there's a passage in the Bible. In fact, it's actually a psalm. Psalm 137, if you would please take your Bible there. I want to share with you a group of people who had troubles and they were in distress but the difference was is they had absolutely no personal worship to the God, to God at that time psalm 1 137 this is a psalm of the children of Israel as their nestled between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. This is the Babylonian captivity, and they've been taken out of their homeland, and and they miss everything about Jerusalem and Zion, and they're recalling how good home was, and they're recalling how good the temple of God was, and they're in a foreign land because of their sin, and the Bible says in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon, there we set down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. You see, what was happening is they've been taken away captive. And their captors are begging that they would sing the jubilant songs that they heard in Zion. And they have all the tools there for worship. You see, the Bible even indicates that they had their harps there, and they had their voice, and they had the religion, but they at this time had no real relationship. They had everything there to worship, and yet they were so overtaken by the peril that they were in, they could not bring themselves to worship. When there's no worship, you will always feel weak. When there is worship, you will not feel weak. I recall to your mind a a time in the Apostle Paul's life when he senses the Macedonian call. And uh, he answers that call as he's looking for a place to preach, and God sends to him a vision and, and a woman begging for him to come preach to her in Macedonia. And he goes to Macedonia, and as he arrives in Macedonia, he sees there a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, the Bible tells us. And uh, he meets her there, and, and she has an open heart because God's already been preparing her heart to hear the message that the Apostle Paul Has to preach to her. And I will stop right there and note to you God does work in people's hearts before you ever knock on a door. God does work in your co worker's heart before you ever open your mouth. That's just the way our God is. And God uh, opens her heart and Paul preaches to her. And the Bible says that day that she got baptized and her whole household got baptized. So now they're starting to see some real results uh, as Paul preaches the word of God there in Macedonia. Now, this would be a great story if it ended there, but it gets even better. There's a woman with a spirit of divination. In other words, she could predict the future, so she could predict the stock market and crop failures and, and, and plagues and things like that. And so her masters were gaining great sums of money by playing off her, of her abilities. And uh, she heard of what Paul and Silas were doing, and uh, she follows them around. And essentially, she shouts uh, as she follows them: "These are the messengers of God. They have come to deliver us salvation." And uh, day one, it's not so bad. But as Paul and Silas are trying to preach, everybody's seeing this woman who has a testimony of being a uh, having a spirit of divination. And they, they're now perceiving that Paul and Silas are connected to this woman in some way. And it was hurting the message of the gospel. And we could also learn from this passage of scripture that it doesn't matter uh, uh, how strong your message is. If you're surrounded by people who are weakening the message of Christ, then they will automatically identify you with them. That's why we will not have uh, some people that maybe you like listening to preach. That's why we will not have them in this pulpit because our message is weakened when we identify with others that may uh, have a, a bad perception in our community and around the world. So, uh, but they nonetheless, they're preaching and she follows them around almost as if she's uh, uh, trying to follow their tailcoats and say, I'm with them. They're doing a great work. And one day, Paul just gets so fed up with it, he looks at her and he casts the spirit of divination out of her. Now, this would be a joyous experience for most people, right? I mean, uh, it's gone. Not so much for the guys who were making money off of it. They got angry. They got very mad. In fact, they deliver Paul and Silas up, and, and they start making accusations, and they say, These men teach things that are not lawful for us to receive. And what happens is they take Paul and Silas, and they beat them. And the Bible tells us in Acts that they thrust them into the inner prison. Now, the inner prison's where they put the bad convicts, the, the most secure. And the Bible tells us that they charge the jailer to keep them. And he takes them and puts their feet in stocks. And they've been beaten. And they've now been imprisoned with the worst of the worst. I mean, right over here is the rapist. Right over here is the, 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 the murderer. They're in the worst part of the prison. They've just been beaten. They've just had all... They were in God's will, and it seems like everything's just gone right down the tubes. Now they can't tell Lydia anymore about the gospel. Now they can't disciple her family. It seems like their ministry is over, and what does the Bible say they do? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Wait. They were in every bit as much peril as those in Babylon. They were captive. Their ministry had been removed. The only difference between them was one had a personal worship and the other did not. You see, when your personal worship suffers, and when I mean personal worship, I'm not talking about your faithfulness to come to church three times a week. Uh, To me, that's your reasonable service as a Christian. No, I'm talking about your ability to get in tune with God and pray and seek God's face and read His Word and learn more about Him. How often is your vehicle turned into a place of worship? Oftentimes I find myself listening to sports talk radio too much, and I recently got convicted, and I I said, my truck used to be a place where I sang praises to God, and now all I do is listen to people talk about Tony Romo all day. And I got convicted because uh, that is my rolling church, if you will. I, I've had some of the most amazing experiences with God in my vehicle, rolling down the, rolling down the word, singing. Uh, uh, Did I mention that I love Him? How I worship and adore Him. When I can see no way, He makes a way. Well, I tell you what, and I can't tell you how many times I've gone down the road and I've listened to that song and my heart become broken. And I, just in the middle of the words, in the middle of the singing, I just break down and begin to cry. And I, you may think it's corny. You may think it's ridiculous. But I just say, God, amen. Thank you, Jesus. You, you say, Brother Andrew, there's no way. Well, I promise you this happens. Because sometimes you just need a little bit of personal worship to get you through. And I've noticed that those who stay the most in tune with God are those who are willing to do more bold things for God. I recall as Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And God begins to look for volunteers to, to send out, to labor for him. And once Isaiah saw God, he said, Here am I! Send me. Lord, it doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter who. Lord, if you are supporting me, I'll go wherever you want me to. A personal worship matters. And I hope that we don't have a church who comes to church simply to fellowship and shake hands and and to to eat ice cream or to eat mini triangular sandwiches, which are amazing, by the way. I hope that's not what this has become. This is a place of worship. This is a holy place. Make sure when we have a supper here at the church that this room here stays special. That we don't just treat this like another room. This is a holy place. If God thought enough to ask Moses to remove his shoes, the least that we can do is keep this room here pure from bringing pumpkin pie in here a place of worship, a a personal worship. Secondly, I want to share with you a shared public worship. Now, here's what happened. The first time we encounter this psalm, it's David and him alone speaking to the Heavenly Father. And he prays and he sings to God and he says, Oh, God, you are so good to me. But when we come to Psalm chapter 18... And this is not scripture, but it does help us understand what's going on. The Bible, uh, right here in the little information in your Bible, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Now, the best way that I can explain this is, the chief musician would have been their brother Sean Ogden. Now, you say that's a little weird, and you can picture Brother Sean in a robe if you want. Whatever you want to picture, Brother Sean, whatever helps you identify this passage of Scripture in your mind. But essentially, what David would do is he would write these songs and he would deliver to a musician. And they would put music behind it and they would stand in public worship and they would teach the psalm and the song to the congregation. And communally they would stand up and they would sing these psalms of David. And so now what David has done is he's taken this amazing mountaintop experience in his life and he's put it down on paper so that others can see the experience. I have no doubt in my mind that there are people in here that have gone through tremendous dilemmas in their life. And they've come through, and as the Bible puts it, when I have been tried, I come forth as gold. And you look back on it, you say, God was good to me during that time. And God helped me through. When I saw no way, he made the way. And uh, I'm sure there's stories like that in here. But I wonder how many of those stories go untold. I don't believe that it's honoring to God to honor you. And I, I've, I've said in too many prayer meetings of people doing praises that somehow circle back around to their wisdom and their knowledge. And they say, well, if I hadn't have had the foresight to do that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about when you have a mountaintop experience. How easy it would be to put your arm around somebody or share with somebody exactly how God has been to you during that time. That's what David did. And it encouraged those around him. Matthew Henry put it like this. The private compositions of good men designed by them for their own use may be serviceable to the public. that others may borrow light from their candle but, and also heat from their fire. You know, every once in a while, it's just good to hear what God is doing in other Christians' lives. It gives us hope. It gives us the thought that He's not abandoned us, but yet He's working in the lives of everyday people like you and me. The Bible puts it like this. Uh, let men see your good works that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. The, The glory has never been meant to go to you. When you do good things, when you have good things happen to you, share those experiences so that others may glorify the Father which is in heaven. It's a personal worship and it's a shared public worship. Secondly, Not only is there a shareable lesson here, but there's secondly a starting place of love. In verse number one, I want you to see this. There are, well, in verse number two, there's an amazing list of attributes of what God is doing for David. And as I read through this psalm a few weeks ago, I was just struck in the heart about all that God does for us. But I like where David starts. He starts in verse number 1, and he says this. This sets the tone for the entire chapter. It prefaces everything he's going to say from here on out. I will love thee. Now, he could have said many things here. And in fact, verse number 2 is the power verse. Man, it talks about all that God has done for him. But I like how David starts it. He says, I will love thee. You see, we don't react to God because of what He can do for us in verse number 2. We react to God because He's what, all, what He's already done for us in verse number 1. The Bible puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life. For us, It puts it like this later in chapter 4. Uh, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It goes later on in chapter 4 and says this. We love him because he first loved us. Look, what David's saying here is, I don't love God because of all that he's doing for me in chapter or verse number 2. Oh, God can provide. God is a deliverer. He's a buckler. He's a shield. He's a high tower. He's a fortress. He's a rock. He's all of those things, but we don't love God because He is those things. We love God because He has already proven to us His love for us. You see, we're not motivated out of a heart of expectancy with God. We're motivated out of a heart of gratitude because of what He's done for us. Look, It would not matter to us if God can make this life comfortable apart from the cross of Calvary. You see, if our life was just 70 brief years and he made it pleasant as can be, as dad put it this morning, a banana pudding kind of life. If God did that for 70 years and we died and went to hell, so what? What? sure we were comfortable for 70 years, 70 years we feel like a drop in the, in the sea compared to an eternity. But we love God because He loved us first. And I like how the Bible puts it, when we were yet without strength, when we were weak, we were hopeless, we had no ability within ourselves in due time. Just the nick of time. Christ died for the ungodly. You see, it's that love that motivates us. And David was not saying, I will love God because of what he is. He's saying, I will love God because of what he has done for me already. Do you love God because of the fact he can help you through hard times? That ought not be your motivation. That is a secondary benefit of a much larger incentive package. We ought to love God because He sent His Son to die for us. Because when we were ugly, when we were enemies of God, and we were children of wrath, when we were seeking our own and wanting to be the best that we could be here on this world, and we sought our own way, we sought to please the flesh, when we were ugly, Christ died for the ungodly. That's why we love God. I recently read a story of a woman who was a writer. This, we really didn't know that much about this woman. All we really knew was the name that she wrote under. The name was Liddy H. Edmonds. We did not realize until recent years that this was just a pen name. And the lady's real name was Eliza Hewitt. Now, still not much was known about her, but in recent years, what has come to fruition is it's so it happened that Eliza was a school teacher. And Eliza was, uh, enjoyed going to church and, and being a writer and, and kind of helping people come to know Christ. But one day at school, one of the classmates got angry with her and struck her in the head with a piece of slate. This actually had much greater effects than just a blow to the head. It actually caused spinal damage. And what happened to Eliza was she became an invalid because of this accident. Now, she still had the opportunity to share her faith. She was a Sunday school teacher. She was uh, uh, kind of the superintendent of a children's home. But she took time to write after this incident. And this is some of the words that she wrote. My faith hath found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. No, she's saying, I don't need all the secondary benefits. I don't need the incentive package. It is enough that my faith has been established in the one who saved me from my sins. Oh, she had her hard times. Could you imagine being struck and becoming invalid? And then she pinned those words, "Ah, my faith has found a resting place. I love that. She loved God not because of what He could do for her, because her future outlook was not good. But she said, I love God because of what He's done for me. And it is enough that Jesus died for me. I love that. What's the reason you love God? It ought not be because of what He can do for you. It ought to start because you love Him, and He loved you. Thirdly, and we're done, not only a shareable lesson, a starting place of love, but finally, a shareholder of lavish care. Now, verse number two. Now, I'm not going to get into all the attributes. That's next week. But I want you to see this, and this is very special. And, and maybe this is just me, but in the English language... When I use a personal pronoun, I could then omit the personal pronoun from the uh, consecutive things that follow. For instance, I could say, that's my banana pudding and uh, uh, chicken and bread and sweet tea. And you would take that to mean what? Well, I possess all of those things and they all belong to me. But that is not how this is written. Notice this, and I want you to read the word that I pause at. Verse number two. Out loud, read the word that I pause at. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler. And the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Look, what's so special about this is David learned that he was the one with privileged access to this. It's a great thing that God has all the resources in the world. And I mean, I, it's so exciting to know that there's nothing that limits God's hand in my life. It's just an awesome thing. But it wouldn't really matter if it didn't apply to me. Let me give you an example. Now, I could take you down tonight, and I could take you to the Ford dealership, and we could go look at a whole line of pickup trucks. And I personally like pickup trucks. I drive kind of like a bite-sized pickup truck right now. But in the future, I will drive one that's a little bigger. But, man, have you seen how much those pickup trucks cost now? I don't want one of them big ones that's impossible to park and you have to have a CDL license to drive. I don't want one of those. I want one of the mid-sized ones. But uh, uh, we could go down there tonight, and if I was going to walk down the aisle and point to you a pickup truck that I want, I would go to that Ford EcoBoost V6. I think there's a 3.6 and a 3.2. There's one engine that's a little bit bigger. I want the bigger engine, because I'm only getting a V6, right? So I want the bigger engine. And uh, uh, we obviously since this is all hypothetical and i'm not actually spending real money um because if i were we'd be in the used section at uh, uh, mr eduardo's dealership down there in fort worth but uh, we're, we're spending hypothetical money so we're walking down the new cars we see there and i like the white with the tan trim we would go to the v6 ecoboost the 3.6 liter and they have all these packages ford has a Uh, uh, LT package, an XLT package, then they have a, uh, um, uh, they move up to their, uh, there's one other, and then there's the King Ranch package, and then above that, they have the Platinum package. Now, I don't want none of that Platinum stuff. I'm not a rapper. I don't want Platinum. I'm kind of a country guy. And boy, them King Ranches look slick. The reason I want the EcoBoost is because it's got a lot of torque and a lot of power to pull uh, things down the road. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want that. It gets great gas mileage. I want the white one with the tan trim. But I want the King Ranch package. And I've looked at these trucks just, just to know. And uh, they're about $65,000. Yes, I know. Where's well, hypothetical money. Cheer up, you saints of God. There's nothing to worry about. And, I, and so I'm not spending real money here. But if we had the opportunity to tonight walk down, Mr. Salesman comes out. He says, can I help you? I say, yes, I want this truck right here, the biggest, the best, the most expensive. King, no, I don't want that platinum package. I want the King Ranch package. And uh, he says, so you want me to uh, wrap it up? You want me to go get the papers? I say, no, 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 no. I'm not buying it. I just want it. And I'll tell you what, Mr. Selzman, about next week or so, probably Wednesday sometime, I'm going to come down here, and I want you to hand me the keys. And I'm just going to take it and use it. And uh, I'll bring it back. (laughs) Don't worry. I'm a preacher. (laughs) Yeah, over budget, he says, we should be looking in the use section. (laughs) And, uh. He says, sir, I'm sorry to inform you, it doesn't work that way. He says, you, you have to buy it. You have to become the owner. Why? Because when you're the owner of something, you get certain privileges. Like you get the privilege of access. You see, when I, if I was not the owner, I could not just go down to Mr. Ford dealership and say, uh, sir, I need to borrow this truck. Well, it's not yours. But when you're the owner, it's parked in your driveway, you can use it anytime you want. It's yours. Nobody can tell you, maybe the wife, but nobody else can tell you when to use it, when not to use it. It is your pickup truck. You see, the reason that it's so special that David went through this list and said, He is my strength. He is my high tower. is because David was essentially saying, it's parked in my driveway. And there's nobody that can tell me I don't have access to it. There's nobody that can tell me that it's not mine, it's not my privilege, but I am the owner, I am the possessor of all that God has to offer His children. Well, that's good. You, in your dilemma, have the opportunity to seek God. The Bible puts it like this. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Oh, that's when we need it the most. In our time of dilemma, in our time of peril, in a time when we feel like we're drowning, you know what David says? It's your strength that God has to offer you. It's your high tower. It's your buckler. It's your defense. It's your salvation. He is your rock. And if you can't say amen to that, we need to close shop, friend. He's your strength. Not only the uh, pri- uh, privilege of access, you have the privilege of application. Look, not only can you access God's wonderful gifts that he has to offer us, you then can apply them to the situation that you're in. Look, some, the, the amount of dilemmas in this room, I couldn't even begin to list them all. I sit down and I try thinking of some common ones and I think financial dilemmas domestic dilemmas I think of uh, extended family problems you see what a big dilemma is is when you love your re- relative and yet they won't hear the gospel that's a big dilemma and there's a lot of dilemmas that we may have there's medical dilemmas I know of members in our church right now that are dealing with health concerns and, and they, they seem overtaken in them there's uh, uh, dilemmas with children I mean I'm youth director and since we have such a good youth department surely those don't exist in our church right? There's dilemmas when the teenager looks at you and says, like, (laughs) like you know what you're talking about. And you remember when you did that to your parents? Oh, there's dilemmas all over this room. And the reason I even hesitate to list them off is because certainly, without a doubt, I'm missing some. But whatever your dilemma, whether the king is seeking your life or whether you're just trying to get along with your wife, God, is your strength. And God can help you and you can apply it to the situation you're in. This afternoon while we were overeating with my family, man, I'll tell you what, it is like um, a hurricane. When Miss Mary cracks up, I wonder just what dumb thing I said. I've got to be honest. I'm, I'm certain I've messed up the English language. I've said a, an innuendo I didn't even know I said and uh, is she, I don't know, even know. She'll she'll inform me of it, no doubt. But uh, uh, this afternoon we were overeating with my family, and uh, <laughs> I did not mistake what I was saying. <laughs> this afternoon we were eating small portions, definitely not substantial, gluttonous portions. Imagine if you're watching the live stream right now. They're like, this guy is falling apart. <laughs> we were eating over at my family's this afternoon, and uh, all these kids, i am tell you what, it's like a hurricane hits Paul and Grannon's house when we all get together. There's just, Ben is crazy, Caitlin's following Ben along, trying to do everything he does, but twice as much as he does. Now Olivia's running around, nobody knows what she's doing, uh, and... Barrett sitting over in the corner, all asleep, and Bailey screaming because that's what Bailey does, and it's just, it's, it's crazy now. This afternoon we were watching probably something spiritual, like a cowboy (laughs) game, and uh, my my mom has a wooden floor. Uh, now in her little dining area there we were all watching the game in the living room the dining rooms behind us and we hear this fud ben, 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 ben. <laughs> and uh as soon as the first note was yelled i had no doubt whose child it was i knew it was mine You know what I've noticed? Even when we're in the church here, I'll be like in the back talking or something, and I'll hear a kid crying and I'll kind of listen in. I'll be like, oh that's a bird's kid. I don't care about that. (laughs) So what? (laughs) But you know what I've noticed? No matter the distance I am away, I know my kids cry. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something distinct about your kids cry. Now it's not a better cry, that's not what I'm saying. It's It's not a louder cry. It's not a cuter cry. There's no cute cry, I've learned. But it's a distinctive cry. What David is saying is, God hears my cry. And I'm his child. And he's given me the opportunity to employ his services. And no matter what thing I'm going through... And when I cry, He says, "Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to help. I, I'm looking forward to preaching this sermon series to you because there is a time when God moves heaven and earth to come to David's aid, and you know what? He'll do the same thing for you. When you're His child, oh, He hears your cry. It's distinctive."